right now you have less than two months until Christmas. It's coming up quick. It's coming before you know it's here. Like as crazy as 2020's been, everything that's happening, everything's going to keep coming at you before you know it. You're going to be like, oh my God, Christmas is next week. Don't let that happen to you. You need to go to Blackstar Woodcrafts and check that out. My buddy Scotty is the sponsor of this podcast, and the stuff he does in his workshop is absolutely amazing. Um, obviously, with it being called Blackstar Woodcrafts, he does exactly as it sounds, woodcrafts. And he does some really excellent stuff. Everything from pens to bottle toppers to clocks to um, cutting boards. I mean, you name it, this guy can do it. And he does amazing, high-quality work. Everything he does is to order. He doesn't say, like well, this is my cutting board and I'm going to make a hundred of them and then sell them. No, he likes collaborating. He likes talking to his customers, figuring out what it is they want, what it is they like, what they want the final product to look like, that whole collaboration process, artistic process. And then he does it and it's on its way to you. So I highly recommend you check it out. You can get a family member, a loved one, the security guard where you work, something really, really great for Christmas. And something's, something that you can't just go to Target and pull off the shelf. You get them something really unique, really awesome. You can get it engraved with whatever you want. Do it. I don't know why you're wasting time. Why are you even listening to me? You should have... No, don't shut this podcast up. After the podcast, go check it out. But Blackstar Woodcrafts, you can find him on Facebook and on Instagram. And you direct message him right through there. He'll get back to you. And you can start that whole process. And because he's a sponsor of this podcast, you will get 10% off your order. Just say, hey, Finch sent me. He'll say, cool, give you 10% off. And he will start working on it and will, will be on its way to you. Do not hesitate. Go do it. Today on the podcast, I was really excited. My good friend Julie is back. Dr. Julie Hartman, like she was on, um, I want to say like episode two, which was about a year ago. Um, and she is a sociologist, she is an educator, and she's one of my closest friends. We've known each other 20 plus years. And with everything that's been going on um, the last several months between Black Lives Matter and everything else like that, I needed somebody to come on who could help my dumb brain articulate things better. Because that's when she's really good. I kind of get these notions and she's these thoughts about things. When I talked to her about it, she's like, oh, yeah, that's actually a thing that's called this. And there was a study done once. And I'm like, oh, OK, I yeah, I occasionally got to be reminded how much smarter she is than me and well read. So I was really, really happy she agreed to come on. So we did this and um, it turned out really, really great. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Julie. Okay, and we are live. Julie is back. Thank you for coming back. Um, Thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially with, because we're how many days away from this election that I can't wait to be over? <laughs> uh, um, you think it's going to be over on November 3rd? No, I don't. And I was, gosh, <laughs> I was, just, you know, this is like the most frustrating thing. And 
to anybody who's listened to this who's a Trump supporter, I apologize ahead of time. But, um, you know, I was just having this conversation the other day with a friend of mine. I'm like, you know, unfortunately, dealing with somebody like Donald Trump, if he loses the election, he's not going to disappear. He's still going to be on Twitter. He's still going to be raising a hell. Every time Biden has any kind of misstep or snafu, he's going to be all over it and constantly whipping that base into a frenzy. And I just feel like if anything, the election is going to be a transition into a new kind of hell <laughs> and not necessarily. On the other hand, hopefully that means he's just not in the White House anymore and at least right. that's a bonus. In 2020, I, I have no expectations. I mean, I, I don't know what kind of fresh hell <laughs> the election <laughs> will bring. I'm waiting for the murder hornets to just, you know, take away everything. So yeah, I was kind of hoping that they were just going to end it. Like they were just going to show right. up and you're done. And there was human. a plague of locusts. Don't forget the locusts that yeah. happened in, in Africa. Uh, yeah. I don't remember exactly what, where did they go? Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, it's amazing in this year how it's like something happens or I shouldn't say something happened. Somebody will bring up something that happened earlier this year that was a disaster. And you almost look back on it finally like, oh yeah, that did, yeah, the Australian wildfires, that did happen right. this year, oh, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. Wow, I remember when that was the biggest news story in the world. Wow. Yep. So anyway, we were, um, <clears throat> as we sit here reminiscing about the disaster of 2020. Um, so you and I were texting like last week and I thought it was really interesting. You had mentioned um, that in one of your classes you had just finished the lecture and I love the way you titled it about how the American dream is bullshit and I, it was one of those few texts that I read and actually legitimately laughed out loud so I will let you explain to the listeners and a little bit more to my dumb head exactly what that means right so and, and for the record I don't actually title the lecture the American dream is bullshit when I present it to students. Um, and I, I try to, you know, and actually, to be honest, most students, um, they are already very aware. Um, you know, they're doing their best to get an education and, and hopefully in, improve their prospects, but they are typically very aware that the deck is, is stacked against them. Um, but yeah, so, you know, and, and this is not, a new phenomenon. If we go back even to the 1950s, when we think the American dream was perhaps the most achievable, at least that's the right, making America great again sort of mentality, um, there was not a lot of social class mobility. Even going back, you know, 40, 50 years, um, for the most part, the, the biggest factor in your success is whether or not you were lucky enough to be born to parents who were in the upper class or at least middle class. Uh, if you had the, if you made the poor choice of being born to poor parents, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of stuck there. And that's not to say we don't have any mobility. Um, and I always try to stress to students that, you know, your life chances are better if you do work hard and apply yourself. So, um, you know, don't, don't walk away from this going, well, <laughs> I'm just going to drop out and do nothing. Um, but yeah, we see, I mean, the, the studies kind of bear out that um, particularly for those born in the, the lowest 20% income bracket, 70% um, of those kids will never get to the middle class as adulthood. Um, and less than 10% will get to the top 
the, the top 20% earners income-wide. And this is looking at, um, it was a, a really cool study that came out looking at census data and tax records from the IRS. So really comprehensive, right? Those are, from a researcher's perspective, really good sources of information because as your listeners are probably aware, you know, it's hard to hide anything from the IRS. So <laughs> when it comes to income, um, we, we know a lot from those things. Um, and 20% of those um, living in, in, you know, born in that lowest 20% or 20% uh, of people won't, um, won't, or I should say 40%, sorry, 40% won't move at all. So if you're born into the lowest, the poorest 20% of people, that's where you will also spend the rest of your life. It isn't even all that great for the middle classes. Um, only 20% of the kids born into the middle class families uh, will make it into that top 20% of earners. So, you know, it's, we have this idea that all you need is a little, you know, hard work and gumption and you can make it from rags to riches. And that's just simply not the reality. Again, we, you know, we have lots of people we can point to that are the exception rather than the rule. Uh, you know, because there are people that, you know, their parents had government assistance and now they are, you know, working for a big company or whatever. Uh, those people exist. It's just that statistically the deck is stacked against people having a class mobility. Um, and this is compounded by race and class. They looked at, you know, similar figures um, and found that actually downward mobility was more common for middle-class and affluent um, African-American and Native American kids than upward mobility. So if you were you know, lucky enough to be a middle-class or even affluent uh, African-American or Native American child, you were just as likely to end up in the poorest 20% as you were to end up in the richest 20%. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, with, with those figures in mind, the idea that, you know, anybody can make it in America is really a myth. And unfortunately, I think it ends up placing blame on people for their circumstances, right? Because of that myth, you know, if you really think all it takes is a bit of hard work and, and gumption, if you don't make it, who, who's to blame? Right. We, we tend not to see all the structural pieces that, you know, if you are born into poverty, you tend not to go to the best high schools available in our country. Um, you know, if you're lucky enough from there to get into college, how well prepared are you for college? What kind of college are you going to? Um, you know, those kinds of things stack the deck against people. So even with all the hard work in the world, you're likely to end up in the same social class your parents were. And the flip side of that is I think for, you know, and I'll, I'll consider myself among those lucky enough to be born to middle-class parents, right? Um, it's really easy not to recognize the privilege of that, that, you know, I, I think the saying is born on third thinks he hit a triple. Um, <laughs> you know, I've done well, you know, I've gotten a PhD and all of these other great things. Um, I live in a nice, safe neighborhood. My kids, you know, my kid can play outside because our neighborhood is safe and, and all of that. But I had a lot of advantages that I was able to get. Not, I mean, I did work hard, but also had sort of the, the deck stacked somewhat in my favor. And that's, and I'm saying this is someone who had enough privilege to get to where I am, but frankly, is more of a lateral move, right? I was born to middle-class parents and I'm, you know, sort of in the, the uh, you know, professional middle-class group of folks. 
um, I'm not in the top echelons, that top uh, income bracket or anything like that. Uh, so even with all those advantages, moving into those top brackets income-wise is, is rare. Uh, well, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I, I mean by the American dream is bullshit, that we just aren't, we don't have a society where anybody can make it. Yeah. Well, and I think um, it, it makes for a good, I guess, ethos, the hard work aspect. You know, that's something that's very American when you're talking about a country that was, you know, carved out by immigrants, you know, who right. came here and through, of course, you could be the poorest person in Europe and come here and now you can have 100 acres. And, and so that sort of ethos that exists of sort of hard work and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, I, I, I think it's a good lesson. Um, but I also don't think it's like the above all be all, right. like no matter who you are, as long as you work hard, you will make it. Yeah, there's a chance you'll make it. I don't know if you saw the video. There was a video that was on Facebook a couple of years ago that I thought totally summed it up where they got a group of teenagers together and they said, we're going to run a race. Everybody started this line. Okay. Now, before we do this race, if you're white, take one step right. forward. If your parents are still married, take another step forward. If your parents are middle class, take another step forward. And you get to the point where you see this massive disparity of where people are starting in different spots when the race begins. Yeah, is it possible that that kid all the way at the back end is going to be one of the top runners? Yeah, it's possible. But you're talking about, you know, the exception and not the rule. And right. it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that hard, you know, to, to be able to achieve something. And I've, I've done that activity with classes. Um... And I remember one time it was kind of very, um, it just, it worked really well because there was one young man who was so far ahead, he couldn't even hear my instructions anymore. Oh my God. Like, because he was, and, and I think that was a great metaphor for how out of touch people can be. Like he couldn't even, he had no idea what was going on with the rest of the class because we were all still back you know, in, in kind of a grouping back there, but he was so far out in front, he couldn't even, he's like, what was that? And I'm like, this is a very good metaphor because, <laughs> you know, when you're born practically at the finish line, you don't even have any awareness of what is going on with the rest of the, the, the rest of the runners, right? You have no idea that they even exist. Mm -hmm. um, and I do want to say, you know, as far as the American dream and our, our immigrant um, past, I think there's a couple of things. One is to keep in mind that, the reason immigrants could come and have their hundred acres is because we essentially stole the labor and the land of others. Right. Um, you know, so that part yeah. is part of the story there, but also it was relative to European society. The United States did have less class constriction in our history um, so that you could come here as a poor immigrant and set up you know a homestead or a shop or something like that and your children could have a better life with more freedom and and um you know that sort of thing but the american dream really was not i mean we we tend to think of it now as having a nice car and a big house and all of that um whereas i think for many immigrants coming to this country it was really just being away from persecution and having a person's boot on your neck right, right. like then the american dream was just let me work hard and survive mm -hmm. um and in that way the american dream was more accessible right if that's your baseline but i think the american dream we've ramped it up um you know since uh the last 50 or 60 years of you know now you have to have the nice house in the suburb with the manicured lawn and you know 
that sort of thing. That picket fence, three and a half kids right. and a dog, and right. yeah, and and that's those hallmarks of middle class lifestyle um, really weren't part of the American dream for much of the history when we had that that notion. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and a lot of it, especially just like you said, coming from Europe, it was the sort of like you had mobility and the the ability, I guess, to achieve something because of the fact that you were no longer a subject to a lord and therefore for generation after generation, your family was purely tied to this one field and making sure that you produce enough food for, you know, your local whoever. That um, and, and public education was also a big piece of it, um, particularly in the, the beginning of the, you know, 20th century when we actually had, uh, you know, relatively mandatory public education for, for children, um, you know, for immigrants coming, the idea that for free, their kid would be taught to read and write and possibly have a better life because of that. Um, I mean, we, we often don't think about, uh, in, in most other countries, especially at that time, if you were poor or working class, your kids didn't go to school. Mm -hmm. um, or if they did, it was a, you know, very, I mean, typically your kids went to the factory to work. They didn't go to school. Um, and, and there was no idea of like public education. Education was very much based on social class. We've kind of reinvented that system in the later half of the 20th century where we started having more private schools and charter schools and all these things that kind of stripped away the public school um, centrality. But for, for the immigrants that were coming here, that was another big thing of the idea of your kids could actually be educated and maybe they'd become professionals. You know, your kid might become a lawyer because they actually could read and write and, you know, that kind of thing, um, as opposed to just working sun up to sundown every day. Right. God, can you imagine that being like, and it was such a common thing where like a kid could be 12 years old. And they worked on the coal mine 12 hours a day, six, sometimes seven days a week. And that was just life. And you just dealt with it and accepted it. And I'm like, oh my God, I look at my kid. And I'm like, I don't even know if I trust you with a hammer and a nail right now, let alone crawling down in there. And not even, a, I mean, yeah, if you look at turn of the, turn of the last century, not the most recent century, I st I'm old enough that when I say turn of the century, I mean, coming into the early 1900s. Um, <laughs> But when you look at some of the photos, you know, from from kids at work in factories and coal mines and things like that, I mean, they're five, six, seven years old. Mm -hmm. I can't. I have a kindergartner. Like I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Like <laughs> I can't imagine having to do that, and yet that was just the norm. Yeah. Um, for for many people, and and we still had you know the idea of of kids not going to work and having what we now consider a childhood was a very middle class notion um, that kind of developed you know during that time period. Um, but yeah, well, and especially like back um, even before the turn of the century, and for a great period after that, it wasn't uncommon for people to have you know any seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve children. Of course, the difference is back then children were a way to help around the homestead versus now they cost so dang much to have a kid between all the medical stuff. And then of course, you know, the flip side, you had 12 kids just so half of them made it to adulthood, you know, so that well, and, and Yeah. As you said, children were seen as productive, right? They contributed to the family. Um, and you know, today, <laughs> well, 
<laughs> for the most part, children just suck all the money out of their parents. They don't bring in any money, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, there's, there are multiple reasons that we started controlling fertility um, and that people started choosing to have fewer kids and the, the cost effectiveness per child is part of that. Mm -hmm. um, going back to what you said earlier, and I agree with it 100%. For some reason, we've gotten um, this mentality in this country about blaming poor people for their situation. I mean, we've got an entire like political party that I swear to God, that's their cornerstone is just, well, if you're poor, it's your fault. And we're not going to do anything to help you because American dream and just maybe get a job and then everything will be okay. And even though if you actually do the math on what a minimum wage job brings in, um, if you have any dependents, you can work a minimum wage job 40 hours a week and you're still in poverty and qualify for, you know, Medicaid and food stamps and all of yeah. those things. So, yeah. Well, especially when you end up, exactly, and especially when you end up in the situation where working 40 hours a week at minimum wage is below the poverty level. Right. It is 100% below the poverty level. And you end up in these situations where it's like, not only do we want to blame poor people, we also want to get on them for being on any form of state assistance whatsoever. And there's an article I read not that long ago about a guy who was a single father. His wife had passed away and he was 100% living on government benefits. And that's because that was the only way he could survive. Because if he were to get off government assistance and go get a full-time job making minimum wage, he would be poorer than he was now because of the cost of daycare of having his daughter go to daycare, you know, on top of everything else. And then you need to have transportation and in, I mean, we could go on and on and on, you know, the thing that I, I tried, I tried really, really hard to get people to understand is when we were in the, you know, 1920s and 1930s, the wealth disparity in this country was just, I mean, it was outrageous, you know, between right. the, the, I don't, I don't even, a lot of times like to use the term top earners because how many of them like earn that versus just sat there and every day watch the money roll into their bank right. account while everybody else works. Um, and so the whole establishment of the minimum wage, the whole idea behind it was that anybody working full time at any job. And of course this is, you know, this was a different time. I'm going to preface that ahead of time is that anybody working a full time job at minimum wage could afford a house, a car, and their wife could be a stay at home wife and be able to raise children. That was the whole idea behind a minimum wage. Now it's like if, if I were to go get a job working at a fast food joint making minimum wage, I there's a good chance in the vast majority of the United States I can't even afford an apartment. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and 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 we don't have a way out, right? I mean, if you're you know um, working a minimum wage job, like you said, childcare costs end up taking a big chunk of that paycheck. Um, and even for middle-class families, sometimes they make choices about, is it cost-effective to work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, if you, if you have two adults in the household, um, you know, I've known people that they, especially if they lived in an area where childcare was really uh, a significant cost, the person's wages barely covered childcare. And mm -hmm. why, why go to work just to, like, give your entire paycheck to a daycare center. Right. Um, so they, they made choices to, you know, have a stay at home parent, not because they were like, Oh, we have plenty of money, but like, it just didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, because the wages that parent was able to get didn't, didn't really make up for, um, the cost of daycare. So. Well, and that's exactly right. My wife and I went through that several years ago when she was in college 
because, um, you know, when she would have a, you know, a, usually a minimum wage job on the side because she was going to college, she wasn't going to get too involved in anything. Right. And when we worked opposite shifts, it was fine. But then once, you know, life kind of changed and we needed to both work the same shift, she got to the point where it was way easier for her, for her to quit her job because at the end of the day, the only reason she's working is to pay somebody else to raise our kids. Right. And that, that doesn't make any sense at all, you know. Um, and the thing that frustrates me is, you know, we need to, we definitely need to raise the minimum wage, um, especially when you look at, you know, the difference between what a minimum wage worker makes versus what um, a CEO or the owner of one of these big company makes. And I realize that this turns into like people like, oh, well, you just want to, you know, redistribute their wealth. And it's like, no, I'm not talking about going into Jeff Bezos' house and taking every last penny he has. Although, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but when you're in this position where right. and th this was really interesting, there was a, a case study I read a while ago, it was some socioeconomic article that they did, where they were doing a study on this. And they focused on, I want to say it was one Walmart in Tennessee. And they broke down how much the people there were making and what was going on in this community. And because of the fact that all these employees were making minimum wage majority of them you had a couple who were slightly over that and some supervisors who made like a dollar more than minimum wage an hour um there were a lot of employees there who were on county or state assistance right. because of that and what they figured out is that the existence of this walmart alone was costing the local community four hundred thousand dollars a year purely because of how little their employees are making now, people say, I want to go to Walmart because their prices are cheaper. Oh, you're paying for it on the back end. You're still paying for it on the back end. And the amazing thing is, is they also ran the math on it. They said, if they gave everybody there, if they raised all of their wages to $15 an hour, and the cost of that wage increase was passed on to the consumer, the average price difference would be something like 10% per, 10 cents per $20 item you bought. Right. It's so minuscule. Yeah. And this is not even taking into account the fact that if you give all these employees a raise up to $15 an hour, where are they most likely to do all their food shopping and stuff at? At Walmart anyway. You right. Know that I money mean? gets kicked back into the local economy. Yes. When you raise wages, especially yeah. for low-waged workers, because they are not the folks that are, although they we need more savers, right? We need people to be saving money. But for the most part, low-wage workers aren't saving their money mm -hmm. they are spending it on food and shelter and things that they need and so you know a, a raise there actually is better than you know for middle income right like if i get a raise i'm like oh i'm gonna contribute more to my 401k right like right. you know whereas <laughs> um you know people that are on the the lower especially minimum wage workers it's they're gonna be able to pay their bills they're gonna be spending more um, and maybe even have some discretionary spending that gets kicked into the economy. And I know whenever we talk about raising the minimum wage, there's always the small business angle, right? Those businesses that, you know, oh, I only have 20 employees and I can't afford to pay them more. And I get that that's a legitimate concern. But again, I think, you know, it, it, it takes some time, but because more people are going to be spending money, including at those small businesses, um, it, you know, there is a way to, to, have people get more money to their workers and not go out of business, right? Mm -hmm. um, and certainly for a company like Walmart, it's pretty easy to do because they have a huge profit margin they can tap into um, without, 
you know, too much of a problem, but I think, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's, it's not even that much um, money to talk about a living wage um, that would allow people to, as you said, I mean, to not be on public assistance and to spend that money um, and take care of, you know, take care of their families better. Mm -hmm. Well, especially since, um, you know, when you talk about this, I always think this is interesting when you talk about sports and you'll talk about like some baseball player or some football player and he just signed, you know, a four year, $80 million contract. And you're like, wow, good for him. Okay. Walmart, the Walton family, oh. their, their wealth <laughs> increases by $80 million a day, a day. And you're telling me you can't take just a tiny little bit of that off the top so that literally millions of people who work in their stores across the world aren't on public assistance and can actually afford to sometimes pay for the bare necessities. You know, right. it's just like you were saying, like if I get a raise, you know, at work, I'm like, Oh, cool. Hey, maybe we'll be able to take that trip this summer. So I'm in that position. They're like, maybe I can finally get the heat fixed in my car. Right. You know, those in, and I also think the thing that gets lost on this is there's, there's a mental trauma aspect to this too. You know, the anxiety and the, the feeling just like you said of you know it's kind of like we blame people for being poor and a lot of times that creeps into they feel guilty themselves as though they have done something right. wrong as though they haven't done what they're supposed to never mind the fact that ever since they've graduated high school they've had a full-time job right. you know they've worked hard well have you been saving how am I supposed to save I can barely afford to keep my power turned on in my apartment you know right so and I think oftentimes that get, that gets overlooked and also, again, talking about the costs that we end up paying as a society, um, you know, for children growing up in poverty, the stress, the anxiety, you know, um, living without heat or electricity for a period of time or not having running water for a period of time, those adverse childhood experiences compound and create some of the social problems that we end up paying for, whether it's, you know, um, trouble, behavioral trouble in school, crime, um, addiction. I mean, those things come out in other ways mm -hmm. um, to where, you know, while, while some people might see it as a big upfront investment to do something like raise the minimum wage, the, the savings over time, like forget just the, it's a decent, you know, the, the decent human thing to do is to have mm -hmm. people pay their, you know, have enough food and shelter and all those things. Just looking at it from an economic perspective, there are good reasons, you know, to push for this because it does save money over the long haul. It does cut costs in other ways. Um, and even for, you know, the Waltons, right? Um, we, we have research looking at the, the wealth gap between, you know, the, the lowest and the, the upper folks, right? And that the haves and the have-nots is how it's often expressed, but that wealth gap between the people who are doing the best economically and the people who are doing the, the worst economically, the bigger that gap, the worst health outcomes for everyone, including those top folks. Mm -hmm. So you see slightly shorter life expectancies. You see more chronic illness. Even though those are the folks that can afford, you know, the, the concierge doctors and everything like that, they still don't do as well mm -hmm. as folks who are at the top of the, the economic spectrum, but in countries with a smaller gap. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's very, you don't have to be all that altruistic even to argue for this, right? If you're a top, 
I don't know who listens to your show, if there's any one percenters out there, but, um, <laughs> you know, hey, uh, you know, Walton family, but, you know, those folks actually do better when there's less of a gap between the, the lowest economic spectrum and the top, um, you know, so for purely selfish reasons, mm -hmm. uh, you can do that. You also, when you raise the, the minimum wage, those folks are paying more in taxes, right? Whether it's sales taxes on the stuff they're buying, income taxes, et cetera, that works well for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. So you can, you can, for purely selfish reasons, still make a good argument for raising the minimum wage and helping people um, who are struggling to, to not struggle so much anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's a, there's a guy by the name of Nick Hauser, who's a public figure, and I urge everybody to follow him. He is, um, his, his job is he's a venture capitalist. So he should be one of these like mongry, money hungry people. Right. And uh, I, I think altruistically he is a good person, but he's frequently for years been on social media and he's talking about the wage gap and about minimum wage and all that stuff. And he comes under a lot of fire from, you know, economists on the right and other venture capitalists. And he's made the argument, say, he said, listen, I'm a venture capitalist. and the long run, this is better for me if we do all this stuff too. Right. Because when all these things decrease and all these things can increase, at the end of the day, I make more money. But it, it kind of seems to be like, it's almost like um, nobody wants to be the first one to do it. You know, it comes to these big corporations, nobody wants to be the first one to say, okay, we'll, 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 we'll make our base pay, you know, $17 an hour. Nobody wants, because, Naturally, when you understand it, they're probably that first quarter, if not the first year, they might right. take. They're, they're going to take, take a little hit, hit out of in the short term. Mm -hmm. And we've we've gotten to this point right now where everything is about that quarterly statement. Everything is about that CEO's performance, all that kind of stuff. They rarely look at the long term, decades into the future right. overall outcome. And if a lot of these companies just took that hit right now, a decade from right now, we could be in a completely different economic position in this country. Well, and and. You know, um, there are certain companies that have done quite well during our current pandemic, right? I mean, Amazon, you know, we all sort of joke, like, what would we do if there wasn't, but like, you know, picking up your groceries from Walmart and getting things delivered from, like, those companies are actually seeing a positive, um, mm -hmm. you know, so they could raise, like, they, their, their hit could be offset by the fact they're making a lot more money right now, Um if they did something like that and, you know, helped, helped at least start that process. Right. right. I think I said somewhere that Jeff Bezos, like personal wealth grew like 90 billion during the pandemic. And occasionally I try to sit and just try and wrap your brain around what 90 billion is. 90 billion isn't a little bit more than 90 million. No. It is a lot more than 90 million. Like the gap between thousands and millions and millions and billions is absolutely, I mean, it's an insane amount of money when you think about it. But we've had this thing, and I, I've always wondered um, if this didn't start during the Cold War. But we have this like seated hatred for socialism. And socialism is such a great word that you can throw around to attack anything. I mean, Political opponents have been doing it for a year. They did it for Social Security. They did it the first time they established a minimum wage. Anytime you try to do something to help the people, oh, that's socialism, it's socialism, and it's a slippery slope, and before you know it, the president's going to be Stalin, and it's like, right. oh, my God. Yeah, and, and we have a long history of taking care of people, right? I mean, I, I look at, you know, um, 
religious communities and the idea of communism and communalism is often a very big part or has historically at least been a big part, right? I mean, um, tithing, giving a certain percentage of your income to charity mm -hmm. has been a cornerstone of many faith communities. And yet, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's sort of that, um, I think there's a meme that says, you know, if I talk about uh, charity to the poor, you know, that's Christian. But if I talk about actually redistributing wealth, then that's socialism. It's like, well, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have sort of painted it as this scary thing. Um, because, you know, even though the reality is that the communist countries we see, they didn't do socialism. Right. Yeah. They didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, what has happened in Russia, what has happened in Cuba, what has happened in any of these places, it's not socialism at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, socialism is, is, we've seen it in small scale in a couple of places, you know, where, um, you know, even things like profit sharing for workers, you know, there are some businesses that do that. That's an aspect of socialism, right? That all your workers are part owners of the business. Mm -hmm. That's socialism. Yeah. Um, but, you know we well, the, sort of freak out about that word. Yeah, and it, it's always interesting how you frame it because essentially socialism is anything that uses government funds, taxpayer funds to do something to help the public as a whole. So if you want to make that argument, police departments, fire departments, public schools, highway departments, people who are plowing oh, yeah. the roads in the winter. I mean, you could make the argument at the end of the day, those are all technically socialist programs. I mean, the United States military would probably be <laughs> the biggest socialist program on the planet, right? If we had a truly, you know, free market system, right? If my house is on fire, putting that out would be based on my ability to pay. It would be based on different companies, um, you know, perhaps having cut rate deals. Oh, we've got a, a sale going on this week. <laughs> I can put out, you know, right? Like, Nobody wants that, right? Mm -hmm. Like if my house is on fire, I want, you know, people to show up who know what they're doing to put it out, regardless of my ability to pay. Mm -hmm. And again, with the, and, and my neighbor wants my house to be put out because if it doesn't, right? If I just, I'm like, well, I can't afford it. I'm just gonna let my house burn. My whole neighborhood could burn, <laughs> right? right? We, we can't have that. Mm -hmm. um, and we've accepted that level of, intervention um but we you know balk at anything further than that mm -hmm. well it seems like anytime and i know what a lot of it is a lot of it is sort of this idea that um anytime we're going to raise any kind of tax at all even if the net benefit for the country is a plus at the end of the day you're going to have people who have a whole lot of money who don't want to pay that extra tax and because they have a lot of money, they also have a lot of resources. And it's real easy to mount a PR campaign of, oh, it's just socialism. Those socialists are trying to take over. You know, I kind of. We're in the middle of this. I mean, right. with the fair tax amendment on our, oh. on our ballot. I mean, I, yeah. I've, and it's so funny to me. I see houses with the vote no signs out. And I look at that house and I'm like, you know, you're never like you and no one you know will ever pay more in taxes right, from yeah. this amendment, right? Like I can see you are not a 250,000 income earner. Right. You know, so why are you no, why are you supporting no, right? Not, like, but we, we don't, yeah. because, because those who have incomes that would be taxed higher have been 
really good, right? They have the resources mm -hmm. uh, to throw at this. So, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, well, gosh, in Illinois financially, it's in such a terrible position. I mean, such a terrible position yeah. that I sort of like, and I'm not going to lie, when it came to the fair tax thing, um, I kind of waffled on it a little bit because I was sort of like, in principle, I agree with it. Like I, I, cause I'm all about, you know, I think having a flat tax is ridiculous. It um, doesn't make a lot of sense. No. And it, it ties your hands because, you know, poor people can only pay so much. So you can't raise it above a certain threshold because right. people will, you know, not be yeah. able to pay it. Well, and I think a lot of people don't realize that sort of like through these um, like 50s and 60s and into the 70s when we went through a lot of, although it depends on what rose colored glasses you have on, but economically, when the United States went through some really, really good times and that wealth gap between the middle class and the upper class wasn't nearly as big now, the tax on the top earners in this country was extremely high. Oh, yeah. And it was for a reason. And then we get into the 80s and Reagan becomes president, we see that make a giant drop to the point now it's like we've gotten into this position where the taxes on the wealthiest earners is so low that any hint at raising that by the slightest percentage point is met with so much vulgarity and anger and self-righteous that, and I, some of the people who like, I should say the majority of the people I know who are going to fight against that and be, you know, I, I sort of think to myself like, wow, the CEO of your company is really happy you're making that argument for him because at the end of the day, you're basically screwing yourself at the same time, you know? Yeah. I mean, most people, um, and again, it's, it goes back to that myth of the American dream, right? I mean, there's lots of people who, regardless of the evidence in front of them, think they're going to be a top earner someday. So they don't want those top earners taxed. And, you know, um, if you or I were going to be, uh, you know, a, a Walton, we'd already have that last name, right? Like, right. <laughs> um, we are not heirs to Amazon or anything else. Um, or even, you know, again, with, I mean, you know, the, the 250, the quarter of a million dollar income threshold um, that is part of this, you know, discussion. If you're not there already, yeah, you're not going to be, right? Like, you can still be very successful and do well for yourself and be middle class. You're still not there. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think, and I think even, you know, when when the top earners were paying that big chunk, I mean, they, they organized. It wasn't like Reagan just said, I'd like, you know, like mm -hmm. there was, they had the power to organize so that essentially... Um, Politicians, right, like the whole like, oh, I won't raise taxes is a popular opinion because working class and middle class people don't want their taxes raised. And so when they were able through a flat tax to tie their fates to the masses, mm -hmm. that was brilliant, right? Yeah, like from, a, from an organizing perspective, I'm like, that was a brilliant move, right? Yeah. Because it's going to be horribly unpopular for a politician to, to raise taxes on everyone, right? Um, when you say, you know, I'm only going to tax millionaires, people are more likely to cheer for you because you know most people in the, most people are not millionaires so it was well, it was brilliant uh strategy to tie to, to, to use a flat tax to tie everyone's fate together that way yeah but well yeah. and especially since when you're basically in the middle class your social mobility 
you are so much closer to being poor than you are to being a millionaire. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. a lot of times all it takes is getting laid off from a job, a broken right. bone. Even if you have a six figure salary, yeah, you are still yeah. not wealthy. And that's, yeah. I think the big thing is even high income earners in our country are often not wealthy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most people, their main source of wealth is the home they live in, which they're probably still making payments on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's it, right? Most of us don't have two or three homes. We don't own companies or tracts of land or things that can earn us income outside of our job. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we are part, part of the proletariat to use Marx, right? Like we yeah. are, I sell my labor power, even mm -hmm. though I'm, you know, I have a PhD and I teach and we often don't think of a teacher and somebody who works at Walmart for an hourly wage is having something in common, but essentially what I have to sell is my labor power, just right. the same way a minimum wage worker is selling their labor power. Um, and that's, that's where my income comes from. Well, especially like I, I don't remember the, I don't remember if it was like 90%, but it was extremely high. The amount of people who are like, let's say in the top 10% of earners in this country were born into it. Right. They didn't create it from the ground up. They didn't, you know, they weren't, it wasn't the story of some kid born in a slum and now he's worth, right. you know, $723 billion because he bought all these oil fields. Right. Like this is typically old money. This is typically people oh, yeah. who, who I mean, I think there, there's a great story about, and I don't know if it was one of those talk shows like Letterman or something like that, but uh, Malcolm Forbes was asked, you know, how did, how did you become so successful? And he said, my father died. <laughs> I mean, but right, like for most yeah. of those people that are at that level, it's inherited wealth. And that's not to say, you know, I mean, I, I think some people inherit wealth and then flush it down the toilet and some people, you know, are good with making well, making more wealth out of the wealth they inherit. And I think, you know, Forbes is probably, was probably one of those people that could run with it, um, you know, but yeah, I mean, for most of those folks that are really at the top families and it's families it's not individuals it's families mm -hmm. that are in those you know high highest brackets um and most of their income is not from selling their own work it's from things they own that make money right that can then use that money to buy up other stuff that then right. makes money and it just right. grows and grows and grows and grows and i think i i always thought that like trump was such a great like example of this, like when we, when we want to talk about the race, like we were talking about at the beginning, like you want to talk about a guy who had, was born into wealth, had all this going for him. Born on third, thought he hit a triple and somehow still got called out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and like how much money it was, it was like $90 million or something like that his father gave him and he pissed it all away over and over and over again. Well, I kept running to new investors to get more right. money. And yet, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, the difference between Donald Trump and a sleazy, greasy used car salesman is birth. Right. That's literally the only difference. Like, no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, uh, it's just different variations of the flim flam man, right? The, mm -hmm. the snake oil salesman that goes from town to town. If you're poor, um, you know, it looks different, but it's the same con, right? Right. Um, and if he wasn't wealthy, 
you know, if he was going to payday lenders to get loans, <laughs> we would have a very different story about Donald Trump, right? He'd probably but, be in jail by now, wouldn't he? Oh yeah, we're yeah. murdered, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Because he owed, because he went to the wrong person for money. Um, yeah, so you know, and at the same time, there are people with excellent business skills that, through the you know, through being born to poor parents they're never going to run awesome companies and, you know, they have the skills where they'd be great, mm -hmm. but yet they just yeah. aren't going to get there. They're not going to have a daddy who's going to give them $90 million right. to, for their startup. I mean, most of us would do, you know, at least, at least break even if we yeah. were given that kind of money. Well, they did an economic breakdown of his profile one time and had figured out with Trump that when he got that $90 million, if he would have just, taken all of it and literally just put it in mutual funds, he'd be right. worth way more today than he, than he is because he's lost a God, uh, the, how many businesses he's had, that's had to go bankrupt. Right. And then on top of it, the whole, you know, this long, long history of not paying contractors that he's hired for construction or painting or catering or all this stuff. And yet you have a lot of working class people who are like, yeah, he's the guy. And it's like, you don't want to talk about the small business. Well, if you were a small business and you got this great contract from, you know, Trump to come do this thing and then you go do it and you end up barely breaking even from it because he just decided not to pay you anymore. There's no way you can afford to fight his lawyers in court. No. And he knows that. And that's why he's gotten away with it for decades and decades. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you almost admire the, the, the con he's got, go like, you almost have to be like, wow, how has he managed <laughs> to sell people on this very different story of reality? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, he's, but he was born into a different caliber of family wealth and did well with, or well, he didn't do well with it, but he has had that cushion to cushion his fall, whereas somebody who doesn't have wealth, I mean, if you had failed business after failed business, you know, if you were middle class and did that, you would be in poverty now because, you know, that's what happens when your business fails. Mm -hmm. so. And nobody would want to talk to you. Right. Your you would, you would not get any investors yeah. helping you out. They'd be like, oh God, it's that guy who's, you know, Ponderosa went belly up for the third right. time. And like, he, could, oh. he couldn't manage a Hardee's and now... <laughs> now all Hardee's are gone because of him. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever did happen to Hardee's. <laughs> that's funny. Um, so... Transitioning, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about is um, Black Lives Matter, which is another one of those, I almost called it a modern phenomenon. I don't think that's the right way to phrase it. Um, something that the controversy around it has me completely baffled, has me just like, you understand that because we're saying Black Lives Matter, we're not saying anti-white. And somehow that's become an issue like far more than it should like we were a whole generation of people who grew up being taught about martin luther king and about the civil rights act and what a great time in american history it was that we were actually beginning to be able to move past a lot of this stuff at least as far as you take the the boiled down elementary school textbook right. version of it um and yet there's a lot of angst and anger over it yeah well i mean you know we talked about social class and those who have more wealth are they don't they don't want to share mm -hmm. um you know the reality is you and i have had our even though we've you know I, I know we've both had our struggles and obstacles and things like that i mean when you say white privilege people are like my life is hard what are you talking about 
but there are doors that are at least not slammed in our faces right because of being white right and i think when you start really looking at um at that people get worried people get freaked out um and because we have had for even even you know people who uh, I think are a little bit more aware of issues of racism, still see, often see racism as this individual thing, right? And so if you're saying racism exists, then you're calling me a racist. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, no, you don't have to have done anything racist to have benefited from racism as a system. Um, and I think, you know, we're so used to making it about the individual that it's, it's, a, it's hard for some people, I think, to understand. And, I, you know, I thought a good analogy that I saw on social media was talking about, you know, when it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, you don't have the pancreatic cancer people saying, pancreatic cancer is important too, and like yeah. smashing the pink ribbons, right? All like, cancers matter. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> we, we just acknowledge, like, now we're recognizing this one because we need to pay attention to it, right? Right. Um, and, and I think, you know, people are really don't get that or don't want to acknowledge um, the ways that their life has been made better, or at least not as bad as it could have been if there wasn't a racial hierarchy in our society. Right. Well, in the most, for me, I guess, in a way it got um, very, very personal, especially when we talk about white privilege. Um, I have a, a family member who's African-American and I'm not going to say his name because he's not interested in being a poster boy or, or for anything. Right. Um, but you're talking about a teenager who's a really, really good kid, gets good grades, is very fun loving, you know, just, just an all around great guy. And growing up in small town America, the amount of racism that he has had to encounter based purely on that one differentiating factor. Um, the fact that, you know, he was, he had a job where he was working for a landscaping company. And when he's working on a yard and the neighbor lady calls the business owner and says, you better get that F and N off away from my property. Um, when his parents have learned that when they go to Walmart, as much as he's a teenager, as much as he wants to go over to the sporting goods section and check stuff out, he better stay with them because somebody will inevitably call security or call the police that there's a suspicious looking character in the sporting goods section. Right. White privilege is the simple fact that as a white person, I don't have to have those conversations with my children. No. You know, my oldest is 17 years old. I don't have to explain to him, hey, listen, when you walk down to the corner store to get pop, keep your hoodie down. Don't... And you probably haven't had to explain or had the worry that if he does, you know, if something really, because teenagers do stupid things, let's Mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah. That if things go bad and the cops show up, that your kid's going to die. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that was the biggest thing, you know, growing up, I, I never, and, and still, right. Like I'm a middle-aged white lady. (laughs) I don't worry if I get pulled over, I'm like, ah, damn it. I'm going to get a a ticket. Right. I'm not at any point worried this, this everyday encounter could end with me dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, again, with the, the, the collective and individual stress of that, right? Um, I mean, that's, that's uh, living with that anxiety is traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we think enough about just the, the negative outcomes of what it is to live with that knowledge. Um, 
every day, generation after generation where that trauma gets compounded. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, well, yeah. Yeah. And just like you said, like, you know, if my son's driving, I don't have to explain to him, hey, sit down and have a serious comment. Like, listen, if you get pulled over, this is what you need to do. You need to make sure that your hands are visible at all times, that you don't make any sudden movements because, you know, as a white kid growing up, it was the same. Even as a teenager, when I got pulled over, my, my most frightening thought is, man, my parents are going to be pissed. Right. Like, you know? dad's going to be so pissed that I, yeah. you know, yeah. That I got a ticket or, and you're hoping like, God, I hope it's just a tail light. I hope, you know. Right. Um, but that's, it. and I think that a lot of times when we come to these things, because I, I feel like, and you're the sociologist, so you can 100% correct me on this if I'm wrong. But I sort of feel like there, there is a decided difference between active racism and like passive subconscious racism, where people aren't even aware of the fact that they're really racist, but their behavior and how they act in certain social situations or around certain people. And I think, so in, in sociology, there was a really great book written, and it's, it's 20 plus years old now, uh, called Racism Without Racists. Okay. And it was basically looking at how, even if you had, you know, a magic wand and you could get rid of every clan member, every, you know, racist uncle, <laughs> all of those folks, racism would still exist because for the, the neutral setting, the you're not racist, you're not actively engaging in racism, the neutral setting is still a racist system. It's a system that has been set up for hundreds of years, um, and and without actively doing something, you can't dismantle that system. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's it exists even if we had no overtly racist folks, there would still be systemic racism that exists in you know in the institutions of our society, in our interactions with each other. It would still be there. Mm -hmm. Well, especially since it's when you like dial the whole timeline back and you look at where African-Americans started in their, in this country and historically every step along the way, the way they were treated, not just by the government, but by society. Like when you're an entire demographic people who started off as slaves. And even then, once you were no longer slaves, you were still viewed as subhuman to the point where, you know, you didn't make as much money, didn't have as much social services, Schools were not nearly as good. Obviously, then they begin, begin to be associated with crime and with poverty. And we've never, ever broken out of that cycle. Well, and, and when people did say, okay, we'll, we'll just do things our own way. And you started having some African-Americans who had wealth, um, you know, white people burned it to the ground, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Tulsa, the riots in Tulsa, Oklahoma, like just torching a, a well-to-do African-American community and killing mm -hmm. people. Um, you know, when they were like, okay, we'll establish historically black colleges. You know, I mean, I, I still have conversations about like, why is Howard University seen as any different than Harvard University? Mm -hmm. Right? Why, yeah. why is there a difference? Because I mean, I, I, you know, I've known people who graduate from Howard and they are brilliant smart ivy league type folks but you know we still disparage uh the you know those things right that it's sort of like so they couldn't succeed they were not allowed to succeed inside the system of white supremacy mm 
they also weren't allowed to succeed when they, you know, inside or outside the system, they were, they were just basically not allowed to succeed yeah. uh, for generation and generation. And so, you know, again, we have to be actively anti-racist in order to even get to breaking even, right? If the system is set up in a racist way, then you have to go the other, you have to kind of go the other direction, right? Um, in order to correct it. For sure. And it sort of feels like um, the, this is going to sound weird. So I'm going to have to like reverse engineer this whole thing to explain my idiotic thought process. But it's sort of like Black Lives Matter doesn't have anything to do with the fact that people are black. It has to do with what happens whenever you have a democratic or a uh, demographic of people who are routinely isolated and harassed and not given the same opportunity. If the roles were reversed, if the majority of this country was African-American and you had a, a smaller minority of white people who were consistently treated that way, the, the anger would be just as palpable. And the thing that I, I, I try to tell people that, and this is what frustrates me the most, when everything, when everything becomes about back the blue, when everything becomes about these people just need to shut up and stop writing and stop looting, I, I, I feel like I wanna say, do you understand there's a pattern of escalation here? Every single time this happens, it's getting worse. And every single time we, you, you find a way to get it to just eventually cool off and go away until another George Floyd situation happens and there's another spark. And every single time it's worse than the ones before. I mean, we had the one several years ago in St. Louis and Baltimore. Right. And then these most recent ones were a lot more locations across the United States. And it's like, you know, if we could just find a way to actually begin to address these issues, because otherwise it's just going to keep happening and it's just going to keep getting worse. And it's understandable. You know, and you have, and you know, and I think a lot of people agree wholeheartedly that the George Floyd situation was just beyond. It was just egregious. I mean, it was, yeah. yeah. There, like, even the reality is, even if a police officer, you know, does everything by the book and the way they're supposed to, you can still end up with somebody dead, right? Mm -hmm. But in that situation, I mean, I, I, I don't know any police officer who looked at that video and wasn't like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that is not how you're supposed to do this. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think, you know, and it, but that example also unfortunately ends up becoming easy to dismiss because that officer was a bad apple as opposed mm -hmm. to looking at, you know, the whole, the whole system. Um, and because, you know, I mean, neighborhoods that have a lot of crime, they don't, they don't want no police. Right. Um, you know, but they need police that are, you know, in service to the community, which is a different framework than what I think we have in a lot of encounters with the police in, in uh, minority communities. Yeah. And I hate, I hate the expression defund the police. So I think that's the worst possible like label if, you could give something, you know. If if I were the if I was part of the organizations working on this and figuring out the marketing, how do we how do we frame this to make it, you know? Um, it's it's not the best, but I also understand, you know, and and the the much longer reallocate funding to improve social work and education, but you know, that yeah. that doesn't roll off the tongue and fit on a sign quite uh -huh. as well. Um, so I, I can't you know, say I, that, that it's the best slogan, but I also understand where they were going with it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I get it, but yeah, I mean, I do think 
and police, I think when you when it comes down to it, most police officers would much rather have mental health social workers who can respond to the calls where that's what's needed. And, yeah. you know, not dealing, I mean, you know, with education, we've really sort of widened the net where, for example, I remember when there were fights at my high school, it was the principal who broke it up. And, right. you know, those kids' parents got called in, right? The mm -hmm. police never once came to my school for a fight. Right. Um, but today, you know, if you get into a fight in, in high school, the police are responding. And, you know, do you think the police really want to respond to like, oh, these, you know, 15 year olds hit each other a couple of times? Like, yeah, they got, they got other things they'd rather be taking care of than, than these sort of small things. Um, but then right now you've got these 15 year olds who now have a police record because the police have gotten involved and that's going to just perpetuate a cycle. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, having the police focus on policing right, and having the resources, whether it's school counselors or mental health social workers or, you know, I mean, in, in, in a lot of cases, like wellness checks, it's like we just need somebody who can go do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. Well, you have a couple situations here, and I feel like um... – you know, years ago, I had a job where I relatively worked with local law enforcement every single day. It was just part of the job. And the amount of police officers, everything from city police to county to state that I talked to over the years, there was always one common thread. They would always talk about how busy they were, and they wouldn't be nearly as busy if they weren't constantly getting called to things that shouldn't be their problem. Right. And yet, now that defund the police has gotten talking, there's like this attitude reversement on that. And I agree 100, like I get, I get 100%, being, being a police officer is not an easy job. I, no. I, I, it's, it's rough. You, you see a lot of shit that, you know, the, you take in a lot more than the right. average person normally has to. You're not seeing the best humanity has to offer right. when and you're I, a police officer. And I think the, the bad side to that is over the course of time, that can have an impact in terms of how you view the world, how you view the community, how you view people. Right. Um, and I think that there needs to be, a, I would even be fine with saying increase funding for police. I'm totally fine with that. Let's increase training. Let's increase workshops. Let's, you know, let's say you work five days a week and one of them is like 100% a debriefing, decompressed kind of day. You know, that's totally cool. On the flip side of it, we 100% need to rethink how we attack a lot of these problems, just like you were saying, which is what the whole attitude behind defund the police is. Especially when you're in a situation like, you know, let's say you have a woman um, who lives in an apartment with a boyfriend or husband, something like that, and he tends to get a little drinky drinking, a little abusive on occasions. Now, a lot of times this woman is not going to call 911 because that will make the situation worse. That escalates things, yeah. It, it escalates things big time. Whereas if she had a number that she could call and social services could send a caseworker over, a therapist, even a psychiatrist who can begin and begin building a case where it's like, okay, let's talk on this. Let's meet regular. Let's check in without there being law enforcement and courts and stuff involved. You can begin to make that situation better rather than you just call 911 and two police officers show up and go, Oh God, this apartment again. You know what I mean? Well, and even, I mean, I, one of the things that I've noticed with a lot of these situations is that I don't know if you remember when, when we were kids, there was that show Rescue 911 or whatever yeah. that was like 911 calls. And they were always these life-threatening emergencies, right? Mm -hmm. And I hear some of these stories like, you know, oh, there's a little girl selling lemonade. I called 911. Like, do, do you know the 
okay, first of all, use the non-emergency <laughs> number, right? Like, A, I don't think you should call the police on someone selling lemonade when they're like eight, right? Right. Um, but if you feel compelled to report them because they don't have a license to sell on the street corner, <laughs> there is a non-emergency number and you have a smartphone. So you yeah. can just be like, you know, Siri, what's the non-emergency police number? Yeah. You don't have to call 911 because 911, when police get a 911 call, they are coming primed for a certain thing, right? Yeah. Because 911 is for life threatening, crime in progress, somebody could be killed, yeah. I could be killed as a police officer, right? I'm coming into a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. So they're primed for that, which I think is part of why we sometimes see what, what seem like dramatic overreactions on the part of police. But if you get a 911 call, they're primed for you know, this to be a 911 call, not, you know, I saw a black person walking down the street and I don't know if they belong in my neighborhood. Like, yes. first of all, yes, probably don't need to call the police on that. But second of all, if you do feel compelled, right, like the non-emergency police number would be a more logical choice because again, when you get non-emergency calls, the police sort of triage things, they respond with a very different demeanor. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same if you if you're in a car accident, you don't call 911 if nobody's injured. Right. Even if you right. need to make a police report, you don't call 911. You call right. non emergency <laughs> number and you're like, oh, I got into a fender bender and I need a police report for insurance. Right. Like you're yeah. not. And, and they show up with the demeanor expected of, oh, I got to make paperwork so insurance can get you know paid on this. Right. Um, it's a, it's just a different, and so I'm, I'm just baffled sometimes by people that, like, really, and, and that gets back into the, people don't have to be overtly racist, but if your knee-jerk response is that you are in a life-threatening situation because you see a person of color, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a problem. Right. And I think right. that's a much bigger problem than most people even realize because it often is acting at a subconscious level. Right. Um, people aren't like, oh, I, I would never call somebody, you know, a racist slur, but who, you know, who are you more likely to call the police on if you see a little blonde girl in pigtails selling lemonade or an African-American girl selling lemonade? Like we, we know because I've seen, I've seen plenty of kids selling lemonade without a permit in my neighborhood. Um, you know, who's, who's going to get those calls? Right. Well, and there's definitely the difference between a, you know, let's say it's one o'clock in the morning and please get a call about a sus suspicious person and they roll up and there is a white kid in khakis and a polo shirt and brushed blonde hair walking down the sidewalk. Right. Now let's say in an alternate dimension that is an African-American 17 year old wearing baggy jeans and a hoodie with his hands in his pocket. One of them, it's a, hey, what's going on? One of them, and the other one is, my hand's already on my weapon. Right. And that's the problem we need to address. And, and along with that, too, is, and there's a lot of research to back this up, that um, African-American kids in particular are adultified. That mm -hmm. is, when people see, you know, a 12-year-old African-American, they're not like, oh, there's a little kid. I mean, there's, there's been, you know, uh, and sometimes the police will get report, you know, there's a 20 year old African American male and it, it's, it's a 12 year old kid, right? Yeah. Like, but you know, if, if, you know, a white kid, a white 17 year old gets to be a white 17 year old, a kid, 
Um, whereas a black 17 year old um, is most likely going to be, there's an adult male roaming the neighborhood, um, which again, the police respond in a very different way. Right. So, you know, even, even the way that the person calling it in views it is going to prime the police to respond in a certain way, right? Because mm -hmm. if I call the police and I say, there's a suspicious looking man walking around my neighborhood, he's African-American in a hoodie, that's different than, I think there's some teenagers <laughs> that are out, you know, smashing pumpkins or whatever, you know, like, yeah. it just, they show up with a very different, what, what's this going to be? And, and from the police perspective, right, because they have a dangerous job, mm -hmm. it makes sense that they show up primed you know, based on the call that came in, mm -hmm. I'm primed for this interaction versus that interaction. But, you know, and then things go from there, right? Yeah. Then the police often are escalating or reacting in ways that, you know, don't help the situation. And yeah. That's really adultification. I hadn't heard that before, but that makes a ton of sense. Right. Like you think about it, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's 100. What was the guy? Who was that? That kid who was like, uh, God, he went to a really affluent high school a couple of years ago was like captain of their swim team or something like that and he like drugged and raped a girl and the judge let him up basically with no punishment because he had quote unquote a bright future ahead of him right what 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 now if that had been a right. 17 year old black kid from a crap you know school right. in the projects they might even you know the da might ask to be able to oh, they would have been tried as an adult and yeah, yeah. i mean it's yeah it's <laughs> um and i think when people, you know, don't want to talk about white privilege, a lot of times it's hard for people to wrap their heads around it. Yeah. But when you start saying, would you be okay with your kids being treated like black kids? Mm -hmm. They recognize there is white privilege, right? Because right. that initial, oh no, like feeling, yeah. that's privilege, right? right? Because you don't want your kid treated that way. Mm -hmm. And that tells you that there is a difference, right? Yeah. There is a difference. And so sometimes I use that as a tool to kind of try to, to get at for those who are like, well, my life is hard and there's no white, there's no such thing as white privilege or that's all just a liberal hoax or whatever. <laughs> it's like, okay, so are you, would you be okay being treated the way we treat African Americans or Native Americans in our society? Mm -hmm. Would you be cool with that? Yeah. And most people, if they're really honest, are like, oh, no. <laughs> right. Right? Like that's, that's we wouldn't be because we know there is a difference. Uh-huh. Well, and I've heard the argument made before where it's like when people say that racism, or I should say, you know, you, people kind of make that argument that racism is really amped by the media, that it's not as bad as people let on that it is. And I remember hearing this, um, this professor speaking one time, God, I wish I could remember her name because it was so great. And she was giving a lecture. And basically she said, is the way you can know it's true is that name me one white person who would trade places with a black person. Right. If we were ever to the point where you could do that without a second thought, like, yeah, sure, whatever. Then you know that racism is gone. But the simple fact that you kind of like reel in your head, like, um, I didn't think Chris Rock said something about that one time where he was like, I don't know a single white person would trade places with me and I'm rich. Right. You know? <laughs> and you know, what's funny too is, and, and I don't know if you saw the movie get out. Yes. Yeah. And yes. it's a great movie. The one aspect of that, right? Like all the, never mind the essentially mental transfer and everything else that's far-fetched. 
the part of it that I was having, that I had difficulty believing in is like, no wealthy white person would ever <laughs> trade places <laughs> with right. an African-American. Even if you got to take your wealth with you. Right, nope. yeah. Like, no, they, need, they, they, they would be capturing white people <laughs> off yeah. the streets because no wealthy white person is going to trade places, even if it meant getting a healthy body and all that. I'm like, nope. Yeah, nope. nope. Nope, I'll just die of cancer. Um, like that was fine. the one area where my suspension of disbelief in watching a movie, I was like, that just wouldn't happen. Nope. Uh -huh. um, you know, never mind all the, all the other hard to believe, you know, the, the fictional stuff in it. Right. Um, that I was willing to be like, sure, okay, I'll, I'll buy this. But I still loved the movie. Um, yeah. But that was the one piece where I was like, nope, no white person would ever transfer themselves. Nope, they wouldn't right. I thought the most accurate part of that movie was when she's telling him at the beginning of the movie when they're going to visit her parents. And for those who haven't seen the movie, you have to understand the main character of this is a young African-American man whose girlfriend is white and they're about to go to her parents' house for the weekend. Um, and she says to him, oh, by the way, my dad's definitely going to bring up Obama. You know, and then they get there and like a, like a couple minutes later, the dad's like, so Obama, huh? Yeah, I voted for him. You know, like right. I'm like, yeah, that's that's 100% accurate. You nailed the head on that one. Have um, you seen the other ones? Did you see Annie Bellum? I did. Yeah. I did. Um, yeah, I I well, I did think it was a really good movie with some interesting. Did you did you see that one? No. Okay. There's some interesting <laughs> parts to it. Um, there, I do have some criticisms just because I felt like. I felt like different audiences are going to look at this in different ways. And that I found problematic in that. And it's the same with, you know, when the media shows the killing of, of black people on TV and PS, how many murders of white people have we ever watched televised? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if, if the person who's being tortured looks like you, you react to, you react differently. Yeah. And so as a white person watching this, I kind of realized I'm, watching this you know these horrible things happening to african-american bodies and i can be detached from it mm -hmm. as horrifying as some of the, and it's a horror movie it's supposed to be horrifying yeah but I'm, I'm i was kind of like i don't know if i would like this would be really awful like i, I worry about uh, you know an audience of african-americans and, and then i start thinking was this movie made for white people um, because for African-Americans to watch it, they're going to have a, a different visceral experience. Um, so I, I have some thoughts on that, but I did think it was very interesting um, in, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And I We're, also love that the main character is a sociologist. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> we so finally get our due cinematically. Uh, yeah. So is the movie worth watching? I do think it's worth watching. Um, okay. And I think it can bring up some interesting discussions. Um, but, you know, and, and, and I also think, you know, there's, there's some, having, having some background on what people did to African-Americans who were enslaved, I guess the, the callousness and the treating people as subhuman, um, I, I don't find, like, I don't get an education from seeing this. I know, I'm trying to think of what movie it was. Um, 
Django Unchained, I think, was the movie oh. where I, I knew some people who were like shocked when they realized that the the, the tortures from that mm. movie were not invented by the screenwriter. Right. These were actual things that happened to enslaved African peoples. I knew that though. So for me, it was like, yeah, this is not like, I'm not blown away in that like, oh my God, they did this. Like I, I've- The shock yeah. value didn't hit you. Right. Yeah. Like I was like, no, this is, this is what really happened to people. And that, that makes your response to seeing it on screen different because yeah. when you start thinking about the actual human beings, that lived through this mm -hmm. or that didn't live through it because they were killed. You know, suddenly it's not a fun action movie. It's, yeah. it's like you're crying and you're like, this is awful. Um, so yeah. It was sort of that, did you ever see a million ways to die in the West? I don't think I did. I, that, I don't remember that one at least. That, that one's worth watching. It's that, I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, it's a Seth MacFarlane movie. So oh, got, I think I did watch that. Yeah. When it, the, when it came out, so it's been a while. And the only thing that made me think of that is Django, and that makes a cameo at the very end of the movie. Ah. You know, which was kind of like, it, it made it made you feel, I, I don't want to say better, because there was a, you know, of course, we're dealing with, I want to say it was like the 1880s or something like that. Right. Which, of course, even though we're talking post-emancipation, is still an extremely racist period, you know, towards Africans, towards Indians, right. towards, you know, you name it. Um but his cameo at there at the end made 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 me feel really good. So you said Antebellum is worth watching, which I have to admit that's the whole reason I wanted you on this podcast was at the end of it just to get a movie review and see if it was worth my time. So yeah. I, I spent an hour and a half doing a podcast to find out if I should watch an hour and a half movie. So yeah, you probably could just watch the movie. Yeah, I probably could have. Um, and well, we'll wrap this thing up. Do you have anything you want to say in closing or? No, I just, you know, after our last podcast, uh, the world turned into a dumpster full of dirty diapers on fire. And I hope that, our next, that this podcast, by the time it's released, I hope that, you know, we're, you we're know, better. It's, it's entirely possible. We did the first podcast, which was just about a year ago. Um, may have unleashed something that started all this, and maybe right. this will put like a the stop butterfly to it. effect, like this, you know. Yeah, or we summon something because we were talking about Buffy. We did. We might know. have inadvertently summoned some sort of hell beast. Yeah, and then now, hopefully, with this, we can close the put it back down and yeah. fulfill some prophecy that we're not even aware exists. But right. Um, well, all right, well, hey, Julie, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, there's no doubt that in the future I'll bug you again. Next time we have another giant dumpster fire, I'll be like, Julie, you got to come out and explain yeah, this to me. Well, I gotta... Maybe a post-election, post post-mortem or something. I don't know. There we go. <laughs> CPR on America will title it. Yeah. <laughs> the healing times. Yes, there we go. Bringing yeah. the country back together. We can hope. We yeah. Can. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Thank you. All right, so that was the podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening, uh, for checking us out, continuing to support the podcast. I really, really hope you enjoy it. Um, if you could do me a favor, if you could please like, subscribe, share, tell a friend, tell their friend to tell a friend, that would be absolutely amazing. And if you happen to be listening to this through an Apple device, um, right there in the corner, there's a spot to give us a review. If you could please do that, every little bit of that helps. And I want to thank everyone once again for coming along with the show. Love y'all. Take care of each other and we'll catch you next time.